Today we're starting a brand new series of messages that we're calling Made for Mission. Made for Mission, and we're going to be talking about this subject of missions over the next two weeks as we enter into a season of missions uh, emphasis as a church family and uh, like Seth said a moment ago uh, that we're going to have Dr. Don Sisk with us next week and I'm greatly looking forward to that but Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning if you're ready to dive into God's word today would you say amen Mark chapter 7 if you don't have a Bible today there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you and uh, if you don't have a Bible or don't own a Bible, uh, that Bible's our gift to you. Feel free to take that home, and uh, we would love for you to be able to use that Bible and grow in your walk with God with it. And uh, most of the verses will be on the screen as well today. But Mark chapter number 7, let's start reading in verse number 24. The Bible says, And from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into an house. And would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman, everybody say a certain woman, whose daughter, whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. Now upon first hearing, this sounds startling and shocking coming from Jesus, and we're gonna unpack this here in just a moment. But she answered, verse 28, she answered and said unto him, yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, for this saying, go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed. Aren't you thankful for the healing power and the saving power of Jesus Christ this morning? And we're going to continue reading on in just a moment, but let's pause right there. This morning, I want to bring a message that I'm calling this one at a time, one at a time. In fact, everybody turn to your neighbor and say one at a time, one at a time. Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for this time that we can come together and to study your word. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit this morning to give me the words to say that would be helpful and beneficial. God, I pray that we would understand as a church family the significance of living a surrendered life, the significance of living a life that is engaged and on mission. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd be pleased with our time together. And we love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said... A couple of weeks ago, our family was on vacation, and uh, we were blessed to get away and spend some time with family for a few days. And uh, we went to Washington, D.C., and uh, we saw many of the sights, and we had a great time together. And on the first night in Washington, D.C., we went to the Lincoln Memorial. And uh, we went at night, and uh, we climbed up there, and we were taking some pictures, and we were looking down at the Washington Monument. And I took this picture of my youngest daughter, Blakely, uh, there at the Lincoln Memorial with the Washington Monument in the background. And uh, I gave the phone 
phone to my oldest daughter, Liv, and I said, okay, take a picture of me and mom standing right here. And uh, Liv took the phone, and she was kind of uh, taking a while to take the picture, and she eventually took the picture, and this is what she took. She totally missed the Lincoln Memorial, uh, nowhere, or the uh, Washington Monument, nowhere in the background. And uh, she eventually, the next time after we saw it, if you go to the next picture, she eventually uh, got the monument in the picture. Uh, but we had a great time, and we were going kind of to different sites and going to different museums. And uh, some of those museums... Katie and I were finding some things fascinating, but the children uh, did not think that all of those museums were very entertaining, right? Some of those things were a little bit boring for them. Uh, but one museum that they were very excited about uh, going to was the Spy Museum. Has anybody been to the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C.? They were, they were so excited to go to the Spy Museum and, uh, and uh, to learn about all, all the secret uh, secrets of the spies. And when you get there, they give you this little card that gives you a new identity, and it gives you a certain code word, and, and uh, it gives you all of your missions and you have to go into the museum and and you have to uh, discover the secrets and find out where the bad guys are hiding and my partner for the, the spy museum was Blakely and so we were going around and we were trying to discover all the clues and try to figure everything out and as I was watching my kids go through the spy museum uh, I learned something and that is that a museum is a lot more engaging when you're on mission when you're doing uh, when you're doing an assignment when you have a goal to go after and I thought about that when I was watching my kids and I thought the same is true when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to following Jesus, that the most fulfilling life possible is found when you are living on mission. The best life possible is when you are actively engaged in the calling that God has given you. And so many people live their lives in a state of discontentment, in a state of discouragement, and even in a state of boredom uh, because they are not actively engaged in what God has called us to do. And so it's my prayer today that the church would wake up and we would understand that we are here for such a time as this and that God has given us a mission to reach people with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. It is not something that we do passively. It is something that we do actively. Jesus made it clear in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. He said, go. Everybody say go. He said, go. You've got to go, you therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This is the mission that Jesus has given us before he ascended up into heaven. He told us that we are to go. Now, he didn't have to do it this way. The moment that you prayed and accepted Jesus Christ, the moment that you became a follower of Jesus, he could have just taken you right up into heaven and uh, right there in that moment. But he chose to leave us here on earth. Why? Because there are still people in the Inland Empire, in Rancho Cucamonga, in Ontario, in Fontana, in Rialto that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he has called us to engage in this mission. Oswald Chambers said this, the thing that makes a missionary in the sight uh, is the sight of what Jesus did on the cross and to have heard him say, go. He says, you wanna know what makes him a missionary, uh, how someone could be called into missions? It's considering what Jesus did for you on the cross considering the blood that was shed, and then to hear him say, go. He says, that is what makes a missionary. Now, uh, Jesus is uh, the greatest missionary that the world has ever known. Uh, Jesus came from heaven to earth with one primary purpose. The Bible says in Luke 19, verse number 10, to seek and to save that which was lost. And so Jesus not only has expected this from us, but he also exemplifies this for us. Uh, he exemplifies the heart of a missionary. And today, to see that we're going to come to Mark chapter number seven. 
Now, before we dive into our text today, Mark chapter 7, beginning with verse 24, I thought it'd be helpful for us to kind of understand a little bit of the context as to what led to this moment where Jesus essentially goes on a missions trip. Now, what led up to this moment is one day the disciples were getting ready to eat and they ate their food, and the Pharisees were very upset because the disciples did not wash their hands properly before they ate their food. Now, before you think that the Pharisees were a part of the CDC or the World Health Organization, that was not the case. Uh, This was not about hygiene. Uh, This was about the ceremonial, uh, religious, ritual cleansing that they expected uh, the people to do. The reason they did this was because it made them feel better about themselves, and they were better than the other people that didn't do this. Uh, For example, they believed that anything that was unclean that you touched, you had to wash your hands. They believed that the Gentile people were unclean. And so if you came into any contact or interaction with the Gentile people, you needed to wash your hands. When they saw the disciples not wash their hands properly, they got very upset. They started to criticize the disciples and they criticized Jesus. And Jesus responds in Mark chapter seven by saying this in verse number 20. Everybody with me this morning? And he said, that which comes out of the man that defileth the man. For from within, everybody say within. From within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the man. What was Jesus teaching? It's what's on the inside that counts. They were so worried about having clean hands, and Jesus says, what you need is a clean heart. By the way, this is a picture of religion. Religion says, I can give you clean hands. You need to perform, measure up, do this, go here, recite this, take this class. I can give you clean hands. Jesus says, I can give you a clean heart. Jesus says, I can wash your heart, make it white as snow. I'm thankful today that the gospel is not about our performance. It's not about our activity. It's not about us measuring up. It's all about the beautiful, wonderful, amazing grace of God. Is there anybody this morning that is thankful for God's overwhelming grace that is readily available to us? And so Jesus was teaching, it's not about having clean hands and the external rituals, it's about having a clean heart before the Lord. He finishes that conversation and then he goes on a missions trip. He takes the disciples, they pack up their bags, and they head on a trip. And it's on this missions trip that I believe that we learn what it really means to be a missionary, uh, to be actively engaged in this calling. And so if you're taking notes today, I want us to see three ways that we can instill within us the heart of a missionary. Would that be okay today? Three ways we can instill within us the heart of a missionary. Number one, be willing to venture outside your comfort zone. If you're going to have the heart of a missionary, you have to be willing to venture outside the borders, outside of your comfort zone. Let's pick up the text in verse 24, and I would encourage you to keep your Bible open and ready today. Verse 24, it says this, and from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is extremely important. This is of utmost significance because this region, Tyre and Sidon, was explicitly and blatantly a Gentile region. And so Jesus was going to Tyre and Sidon, this Gentile region, on purpose, for a purpose, for a mission. In fact, interestingly, this is the only time that we know of in Jesus' earthly ministry that he ever ventured beyond the borders of Israel. This is the only time. Jesus leaves the borders of Israel and he goes to Tyre and Sidon, this Gentile region. I can only imagine what the disciples were thinking. Have you ever tried to just kind of put yourself in the disciples' shoes and kind of try to think about what maybe they would have been thinking when they were following Jesus? 
I think that the disciples just kind of came off an all-time high. You know, the, the Pharisees were criticizing them for not washing their hands. And then Jesus kind of steps up and he defends them. And he says, it's not about having clean hands. It's about having clean hearts. And the disciples are like, yeah, that's what's up. Yeah, yeah. It's not about having clean hands. That was good, Jesus. They're trying to write it down. It's about having clean hearts. They're on an all-time high. And then they're getting ready to go. They're high-fiving one another. And Jesus says, okay, we're going to Tyre and Sidon. What? Why are we going there? Jesus, that's dangerous. Jesus, Tyre and Sidon, I don't know if you know this, Jesus, but they hate us. And Jesus, I know that you've been teaching us about love and being kind to our neighbors, but Jesus, historically, we haven't really been too fond of them either. And I don't know, Jesus, should we be going to this wicked, pagan, Gentile region? I don't know. This is uncomfortable. This is outside of the realm of what I believe to be comfortable. One commentator, James Edwards, says this, Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter. And so here are the disciples that are thinking, wait, you want us to walk towards paganism? You want us to walk towards this, this area, this region where people hate us and that walk towards something that is dangerous? And I want you to know today that following Jesus means sometimes you have to walk towards something that you don't understand. That you have to walk towards something that maybe makes you uncomfortable. That you have to walk towards something that maybe you don't fully comprehend. Why? Because we have been called to walk by faith and not by sight. And so here are the disciples. They're wondering, why are we going to Tyre and Sidon? This makes absolutely no sense. But Jesus is doing this for a reason. Now, the reason Jesus is going to this region is explicit. It's clear. He was going to this region because he wanted to show us his heart for the nations. It's the only time he left the borders of Israel. He wanted them to know. He was teaching them that the gospel, the good news, is not just for one people group. The gospel is for every tribe, every tongue, every race, every people. The gospel is for all of humanity. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Jesus was teaching the disciples something that they did not fully understand yet. And that is that his good news of the kingdom of God is for all people. And so Jesus is showing them and he's demonstrating his heart for the nation. Now, this is something that we ought to really take a look within because often in life we tend to avoid people or avoid situations and avoid environments that we don't agree with. If someone thinks differently than me, I tend to, you know, we tend to want to avoid that. If they think differently, if they act differently, but Jesus always made time for all people. And Jesus commanded us and he instructed us to live on mission. And what he said was this, go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. The highways and the hedges meant the most extreme environments, even the most outskirt areas of society. That's where you are to go. He did not say that we are to go out into the convenient and the comfortable and compel them to come in. He didn't say go to the friendly and the familiar and compel them to come in. He said go out to the highways and to the hedges and compel them to come in. That means that following Jesus sometimes gets uncomfortable. Can I just remind us today that we are not called to live in a perfect utopian bubble. We are not utopians. We are exiles. That we are here for a short time, for a short uh, season, for such a time as this to reach people with the gospel. And so Jesus is instilling this mission within the disciples. Yeah, we're going to Tyre and Sidon because he has a heart for all the nations. By the way, if Jesus has a heart for all nations, so should we. That means that when we talk about having missionary Don Sis come and we talk about next Sunday being involved with missions, that's something that we ought to be very interested in. 
if Jesus had a heart for the missions, for missions, so should we. We, we should be interested in the missionaries that we're supporting as a church. We should be interested in, in Ed Bordell in Costa Rica and Rick Martin in the Philippines and, and uh, Luis Lopez in Mexico and Jay Ballou in Thailand. Hey, we ought to be interested in what God is doing around the world. Why? Because you don't measure a church by its seating capacity. You measure a church by its sending capacity. Are we, invo- are we sending missionaries? Are we sending resources for missionaries? Today, I would encourage us as a church family to get involved in missions. You say, how do you do that? One of three ways. One, you can go. It's a novel idea. I believe God is still calling people today to go to the foreign mission field. I believe God is still wanting people to say, you know what? Here am I. I'll go. To learn about people that don't have a Bible in their own language to learn about remote villages and people that have never heard about the good news of Jesus Christ and someone to say, you know what, I'll go. I'll be a part of that. We can go. We can also pray. I want to encourage you. Those names that I just mentioned, the missionaries that we support, have a prayer list and be praying for our missionaries. Be praying for the persecution uh, that many of them face. Uh, To to, to, uh, constantly uh, remind yourself and and to be praying for uh, these men and women. So we can go. We can pray. But we can also give. We're going to talk about this more next week, but we can be involved as a church in giving above and beyond our tithes and offerings to give specifically to missions. You say, what does that money do? It goes straight from our church into the hands of those missionaries in those churches so that we can have fruit that abounds to our account, even from the Philippines, even from Thailand, even from China, even from these different places that we can be involved in. Jesus had a heart for the nations. So should we. He went to Tyre and Sidon. But not only did Jesus have a heart for the nations. Next, in this interaction that we're going to see with this woman, he has a heart for the Jewish people and, uh, and, and God's chosen people. And I want you to see this interaction. Everybody with me today? Anybody else with me this morning? All right. Verse number 25. It says, For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. So we're introduced to this woman. The Bible says that she was a Greek-speaking, Syrophoenician woman. Greek-speaking, she was not born Greek. She was Hellenized to speak the Greek language. She was Syrophoenician. That meant that she was from the region of uh, Syria and Phoenicia. Matthew's Gospel tells us, tells us that she was from Canaan. Uh, why so many descriptors and adjectives describing where this woman was from? The Bible is making it emphatically clear that this woman was emphatically not a Jew. She was a Greek-speaking, Syrophoenician woman. And she comes to Jesus with an issue, with a problem. Her daughter had an unclean spirit. And she's crying out uh, to Jesus. And it seems like in her situation that everything and everyone was against her. You ever felt that way? That people just weren't in your corner, that people didn't understand what you were going through? Uh, This woman, it seemed like everything was against her. her. Her nationality was against her. Her gender in this male-dominated society was against her. The disciples were irritated with her. In a moment, we'll see they wanted to send her away. Satan was certainly against her. Her daughter had an unclean spirit. It seemed like everything was against her, but she recognized and understood. Even when the world is against me, there is one person that is for me, and that is Jesus. And I want to encourage you today. You might think that your boss is against you, your neighbor is against you, your family members are against you, but the Bible still says, if God be for us, who can be against us? He's on your side, and one plus God is always the majority. And so it seemed like everything was against this woman. 
But she comes to Jesus, and Matthew's gospel tells us that she was crying out, Oh, son of David. That was the messianic title for who Jesus was, meaning she recognized this is not just a miracle worker or another prophet. This is the Messiah, son of David. She's coming to Jesus, crying out to him, desperate, in need. And notice what Matthew's gospel, the same story, notice what uh, the response was from Jesus. Do you want to see it? Matthew 15, 23. But he answered her not a word. That's interesting. She comes to Jesus, please help me. And Jesus was silent. You know, silence can be awkward. Anyone uncomfortable yet? (laughs) Silence can be uncomfortable. Why did Jesus do this? Jesus, I need help. My daughter has an unclean spirit. And Jesus doesn't respond. Jesus was delaying his response in order to develop her faith. How often are we just like this woman? We go to Jesus and we demand a response. Jesus, I need an answer now. I need help today. I need provision tomorrow. I need a raise Monday. Jesus, you need to give me the answers that I need right now. But I want you to know today that sometimes God will say, not yet. And his delays are not his denials. And so Jesus is quiet. She, she's, she's trying to figure this out. He's testing her faith. And then the verse goes on in Matthew 15, 23. He answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. The disciples were annoyed with her asking for help. Now, this convicted me this week. It should convict us when we are more bothered by the lost than we are burdened for the lost. When we look around at our world and our culture, we're so bothered uh, by the lost society. We're so bothered when people don't think like us and when the world and when a pagan society is acting like a, I don't know, a pagan society. Uh, we, can't, uh, we can't expect a lost culture to exemplify a biblical worldview. And sometimes we can be so bothered at the people around us that are lost that we lose our burden for the lost. Here's the disciples. They're just irritated. They're agitated at a witnessing opportunity. Jesus loved this woman. He wanted to heal this woman. He wanted to help this woman, and and, and her faith would make her whole and her daughter. But the disciples missed it because they were more bothered than they were burdened. I pray that as a church we would would not lose our sensitivity to the lost and and reaching people with the gospel. And and we come back to uh, Mark's gospel, and we see Jesus now is going to respond. Notice in Mark chapter 7, back in our text, in verse number 27. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled. For it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. Now, we read this and we're startled uh, because this seems offensive and rude. But we know that Jesus is perfect and sinless and Jesus is kind and loving. And so there's more than meets the eye here. And I believe if we're going to understand this, what Jesus is saying through this little illustration, it's really a parable that Jesus is giving about the children and the dogs. If we're going to understand this, there's two words in this verse that we have to understand. Is it okay if we go a little deeper this morning? The first word we have to understand is the word dogs. Now... In English, we can have one word with many different meanings. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Uh, Consider the word ball. A ball can be an object that you throw. It can be an event that you attend, a party. It can be an adjective describing having a good time. One word can mean many different things. The same is true in the Greek language. And the word that Jesus used for dogs here in this verse is not uh, the word meaning a scavenging dog on the street. There was a derogatory term that was used in this culture uh, referring to dogs of the street. Uh, Paul used it in Philippians chapter 3 verse number 1 when he said, beware of dogs. 
He was telling the church of Philippi, uh, beware of the impure mind. Beware of the scavenging people that want to come in and corrupt the doctrine. And so that was one word. That's not the word that Jesus uses in verse number 27. He uses a different word entirely. The Greek word is kunarion. And it literally means this, a household pet or a little puppy. And so right away we have to understand, even if it doesn't totally make sense yet, we have to understand right away this was not a derogatory slur. This was not an unkind thing that Jesus was saying. And so uh, he was saying, uh, just like you're sitting at the dinner table, first you're going to feed the children. There's going to be uh, household pets there right away. This is not a derogatory slur. That The second word that we have to understand is the word first. Notice it in verse 27. But Jesus said unto her, let the children first. Everybody say first. Here's what Jesus is teaching. This is what he was telling this woman. I must first minister to Israel before I minister to the Gentiles. This was the exact same thing that Paul said in Romans 1.16. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power for salvation to everyone that believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And so here is what Jesus is teaching. The gospel is available for all people. Tracking so far? But chronologically, it came to the Jew first. Okay, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and, and the promise that God made to Abraham. In Genesis 12, verse number 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those that bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all uh, peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. This is why we stand with Israel. This is why we support Israel and pray for Israel. And so this is what Jesus was teaching. I have a heart for all people. He was in Tyre and Sidon. And then he's teaching, I have a heart for the Jewish people. But then it even goes further than that. He has a heart for the individual. Okay, and I want you to see here. Everybody still with me? Notice verse 28. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. So she does not respond offended. She responds with wit. She responds with courage. And she says, but even the puppies under the table get crumbs. She was saying, Jesus, I'm happy with whatever you give me. Hey, hey, whatever can come my way from you, that's exactly what I want. She responds uh, with this great answer. And Jesus, in the parallel passage in Matthew, says this in Matthew 15, 28. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Jesus was astounded at her faith. Great, mega, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. And so Jesus uh, miraculously healed this woman's daughter. This is what we see in our text in verse 29. And he said unto her, for this saying, go thy way, the devil has gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out, and her daughter laid upon the bed. And what Jesus is showing here is that he has a heart for the individual. And I love this so much because... God has a heart for the nations. Jesus loves all people. I'm thankful that Jesus loves the church. The Bible says that Jesus loves the church and gave himself for it. But aren't you thankful that Jesus cares about the individual? That Jesus cares about the certain woman that, that could speak Greek from the regions of, uh, of Syria and Phoenicia. I'm thankful that God loves the individual. That he loves you. That he loves me. That he knows everything about you. The very number of hairs on your head. He cares about the individual. And so here's what we see. Here's what we're learning, that we have to care and have a compassion for the nations, for the Jewish people, and for every individual. And if we're going to do that, we have to be willing to venture beyond what is comfortable. If we're going to have the heart of a missionary, we have to be willing to venture outside of what is comfortable. This leads us to the second thought today. Number two is this. If we're going to have the heart of a missionary, we have to submit to the scenic route. We have to submit to the scenic route. And I want us to see our text picking up in verse number 31. It says this, And again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. And so Jesus leaves Tyre 
He goes up north to Sidon before he goes really southeast and now it travels uh, down through this region of Decapolis. Now, uh, Decapolis meant 10 cities, uh, Deca, 10 polis cities. This was a region of 10 cities. And this is the first time that Jesus uh, went through this area. He'd never been there before. This was a long route. And if you kind of studied on a map, uh, going up through Tyre and Sidon, down through Decapolis, was about a 120-mile horseshoe-shaped journey. It was not the fastest route back to Galilee. It was not the quickest route back to Capernaum. They could have just gone straight down. But Jesus takes them on the scenic route. And I can imagine the disciples would have been confused as to why Jesus was doing this. I mean, they were already in uncomfortable territory. They were already just uh, feeling awkward being in Tyre and Sidon. And rather than just going straight back home, let's go back to Capernaum, let's go back to Galilee. Rather, Jesus says, no, we're going to take the scenic route and we're going to go to Decapolis. Now, furthermore, we don't even know what they did on this journey. There's many things in Jesus' ministry that the Bible doesn't tell us what they did. In fact, I love this verse in John 21, 25. It's probably one of the coolest verses in the Bible. And it says this, And there also uh, are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. And so Jesus makes this journey with the disciples. And we don't know what they did. And it's taking much longer than they thought. But the disciples are learning something. They're learning that in God's economy, the quickest route is not always the best route. I don't know about you, but the way that I drive, I want to get to from point A to point B as quickly as possible. How many of you are with me on that? It's like, we don't have time for detours. We don't have time for delays. Don't have time for bathroom breaks. We're getting from point A to point B as quickly as possible. My kids know this, and uh, they always know that I try to get to a location a little bit quicker, and uh, they can see the GPS in the car there, and if it says the estimated time of arrival or how long it's going to take until we arrive, uh, they pay attention to that. The other day, it said 20 minutes until we get to our destination, and my son Luke spoke up, and he said, but dad, uh, we're going to make it in 18 minutes, right? And I said, that's exactly right. It looks like your fault. You're catching on. You know, something that I'm learning is that I tend to live the way that I drive. I want to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible. I want to get to the destination. I want to experience results. I want to experience success. I want to see God move and I want to see uh, people reach and I want to get to the destination. But I'm learning that getting where God wants me to go is not as important as becoming who God wants me to become. And so often we are in a hurry trying to get where we want to go that we are not becoming who God wants us to become. I want to get to the next destination. I want to get to the next checkpoint. I want to get the next raise. I want to move to the next career. I want the bigger this, the bigger that. And we are so in a hurry that we are missing spending time with God often. You know, sometimes we can be more interested in getting to know the will of God than we are getting to know God. Show me your plan. Show me what's next. God says, slow down. How about let's spend some time together? Here are the disciples on the scenic route. It's taking a lot longer than they thought, but God was teaching them to trust, teaching them to follow him. You know, Hudson Taylor was a famous missionary. He said, there are three indispensable qualities of a missionary. Patience, patience, and patience. That you have to wait on God's timing. And uh, this is what we're seeing with the disciples. Oswald Chambers, he said again, he said, we must never put our dreams of success as God's purpose for us. The question of getting to a particular end is a mere incident. What we call the process, God calls the end. His purpose is that I depend on him and his power now. It is the process, not the end, which is glorifying to God. 
trusting God along the journey, even if it's on the scenic route. Now, uh, be willing to venture outside your comfort zone, submit to the scenic route. I want you to see the third thought today. Number three is this. Never underestimate the value of one. Do you have one more point in you today? Everybody doing okay this morning? Never underestimate the value of one. Notice verse number 32. And they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. Now, as soon as they arrive in this area of Decapolis, as soon as they get there, the Bible says they, everybody say they, this group of people bring to Jesus right away a man that was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they were requesting that Jesus would heal this man. My question is, how did they, this group of people, know that Jesus had saving and healing power? Jesus had never been to Decapolis before. But as soon as they get there, they're bringing this man to Jesus. Please heal him. I believe the reason that these people knew about Jesus's healing power was because there was a man in Mark chapter number five that the Bible says was running around the cemetery naked, tormenting the town that was filled with demons. He was known as the maniac of Gadara. Jesus cast those demons out of him in Mark chapter five and verse number 20. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all the men did marvel. I believe the reason when Jesus showed up to Decapolis that everyone was ready to rush and to bring this man to him is because there was a maniac that turned into a missionary that was telling everybody he knew about the love of Jesus and the power of Jesus. He was a missionary that was used to do some great things for God. Never underestimate what God can do with one surrendered soul. Nobody expected much from the maniac. By the way, never let the devil tell you that you have too much baggage, uh, that your, your past is too messed up, that you've sinned too great. Hey, his mercies are new every morning. Uh, where there was great sin, his grace is greater. And we see that with the maniac of, of Gadara turning into a missionary, telling everyone in Decapolis, Jesus shows up. Now they're bringing this man to him. Now, in conclusion, as we see uh, this uh, scenario played out with Jesus in this man. I believe in conclusion today, we learned three things about how Jesus uh, dealt uh, with this person, really how Jesus deals with people. I want you to see three things today as we close. Number one is this. I want you to see his consideration. Jesus was considerate. Notice it in verse number 33. And he took him aside from the multitude. He took him aside from the multitude. Why did Jesus do this? Because he's loving and kind and considerate. It would have been embarrassing for this man to be in the spotlight, the center of attention. He couldn't hear. He didn't really know what was going on. Everyone's surrounding him, everyone talking, but he's, he's unsure. And the first thing that Jesus does, he says, let's get along. He brings him aside, takes him away from the multitude into a private moment. You know, often before God does something great publicly, he will do something great privately. A lot of times we can see what God does publicly with a man or a woman used by God, and we can think, man, uh, that, that's amazing. But what we don't always see is how they were spending private time alone with the Lord. And so we see that Jesus gets this man in private. He was showing love and consideration and kindness, but not only his consideration, also we see Jesus in his communication. The, the way that Jesus communicates here, I think there's many practical lessons from it, but Jesus was communicating on a level in which this man could understand. I want you to see in our text. Everybody with me? Notice verse 33. And he took him aside from the multitude. They get together in private, and he put his fingers into his ears, and he spit and touched his tongue. Now, you might read that and be like, gross. You know, like, I, I don't, I don't know if I even want to be healed anymore, you know, and, uh, and uh, we can wonder why did Jesus do this? I think it's interesting to note that in the ancient world, spit was actually believed to have some sort of curative quality to it. This was not something unique uh, that, that we see here alone. In fact, one Roman historian, uh, Suetonius, he talked about in his writings 
He talked about this incident where he said, It fortuned that a certain mean commoner, stark blind, another likewise a feeble, uh, with a feeble and lame leg, came together unto him as he sat upon his tribunal, craving that help and remedy for their infirmities, which had been shown unto them by Serapis in their dreams, that he should restore the one to his sight if he did but spit into his eyes. And so, in other words, we see this in other areas of secular culture where they believe that the spit would have some sort of curative quality to it. And so perhaps Jesus was doing this to let the man know what he was about to do. Maybe this would have been a comfort. He, he would have understood, okay, uh, there's, gonna, there's about to be a healing moment here. But I love how Jesus uses this sort of sign language to communicate with the man who couldn't hear. Uh, he touches his ears. He touches his tongue. He looks up to heaven and says, be opened in Aramaic. And when he looks up to heaven, he was letting him know what's about to happen is from God. And so Jesus was communicating in a way that this man could understand. And I believe there's a practical implication for us today. And that is that when we share the gospel, when we talk to people about our faith, we should do so in a way that they can actually understand. Whenever we open the Bible, we should present it in a way that's understandable. We study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But when we're talking to children, when we're talking to teenagers, when we're talking to different groups of people, we communicate in a way that's understandable. And so Jesus was showing his consideration. He was showing his communication. But then I want you to see, thirdly, and we'll be done today, his compassion. Notice verse number 34. And looking up to heaven... He sighed and said, that is, be opened. When Jesus looked up to heaven, he sighed. In the Greek, it's an intense word. It's an emotional word. He groaned, he sighed. And Jesus was sighing and groaning over the effects of a broken society, a sin-infested society. Jesus was heartbroken over what a fallen society looks like. And I thought about that, and I thought, does my heart break over what breaks God's heart? I wonder today, are you burdened for a lost society? Are you burdened for your neighbors, for your family members that don't know the Lord? You know, in the Old Testament, Nehemiah had this burden when he found out about the city walls not being built in Jerusalem and they were susceptible to attack. And Nehemiah was so burdened about this in Nehemiah 1 verse number 4. And it came to pass when he heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You know, Nehemiah is known for building. He's known for building the walls. But long before he ever built, he first had a burden. And that burden led to action. And so we see Jesus sigh. He has this burden. Notice verse number 35. And straightway his ears were open, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. He heals them. And he charged them that they should tell no man. Now, why did Jesus tell them to not tell anyone? Well, a couple of reasons. One, uh, his hour had not yet come. If you study the life of Jesus, he said over and over again, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He was waiting on his timing. Furthermore, he did not want to be seen as simply a miracle worker, someone that was just looking for a show, and they were missing the substance of the gospel. And so Jesus says, not yet. Don't, don't say anything yet. Verse 36. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it. They just couldn't help themselves, okay? They just went out, and they were still talking about it. Verse 37, and were beyond measure astonished. Watch verse 37, saying, he hath done all things well. Don't you love that phrase describing Jesus? They said, we met this man. He does everything well. He does everything right. Uh, he does everything good. And then he goes on and says, he makes both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. 
Now, the significance of that phrase that Mark uses on purpose, I believe, in Isaiah chapter uh, 35, it talks about when the Messiah would come, the deaf would hear and the dumb would speak. And so Mark is saying that they recognize and we're starting to understand who this is. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited one. Again, he's more than a teacher. He's more than a good prophet. This is God in the flesh. This is the King of kings. This is the Lord of lords. This is the God of the ages. He is here before us. So he uses that messianic verbiage on purpose, letting them know this is Jesus. This is the one who is mighty to save. Now, I love this passage for many reasons, but Jesus exemplifies the heart of a missionary. Goes to Tyre, goes to Sidon, goes into a new territory. And what does he do? He reaches people one person at a time. Is everybody with me this morning? One person at a time. How can I make a difference? One person at a time. I don't know if I have it in me. We can reach one person at a time. First, he reaches out to a distressed and discouraged mom. And then to this deaf man. One person at a time, Jesus was making a difference. And so with that in mind, here is my question for us today as we close. Here's what this is all about today. The question that I want to ask is, who's your one? Who's your one? Who's the one person that you would like to see reach with the gospel? Who's the one person that if you invited them, they would come to church? Who's the one person, whether it's a neighbor, a family member, a friend, that desperately needs the gospel? And in a moment today, during the invitation time, we're going to respond. We're going to put some feet to our faith. And there's going to be a card that's passed out during the invitation today that says this. Who's your one I'm praying for to be my guest for Summer Social? Not next Sunday, but the Sunday following, we're having an event called Summer Social, and it's strictly an outreach event where we want to bring people in. We want to invite people to come in. We're going to have a new series that day. We're having watermelon that day. We're having some fun things for the kids, some games. But, but here's the idea. What would happen if our church mobilized and everyone brought one? And we all said, I can bring one person. I can invite one person. And so today in the invitation, I'm praying that God will put someone on your heart. Maybe someone already is on your heart. The Holy Spirit already told you who it is. But who's the one person that we can be praying for? I, I want to close with this verse and we'll be done today. In Luke chapter 15, verse number three, it says this. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness? And go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he hath found it, he laid, lays it upon his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner. Everybody say one sinner. One sinner that needs repentance. One sinner that repents more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. Can I tell you today, never underestimate the value of one person being reached with the gospel message. If one person is saved and is impacted for all of eternity, it's worth it all. I'm thankful today that yesterday teens were saved. I'm thankful in the first service today people responded and gave their lives to Christ. That's what this is all about. What are we doing here as a church? What is this all about? It's all about reaching people with the life-giving, life-changing message of Jesus one at a time. So who's your one? Let's have a word of prayer today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.